People love panoramic lifestyle t-shirts. Oh, I like everything about it. I, I just like the word panoramic. It just seems like it's growing and developing and it's upbeat. And this is actually, actually what I love to be. I love to feel this way. How does it make you feel? Happy, very positive. It's the quality and character of Panoramic Lifestyle t-shirts from Panoramic Lifestyle Clothing. Check them out at plclothing.store. Good morning and welcome to Sunday Digest, a public affairs presentation of FM 99.5 WGAR, Cleveland's country music station. I'm Ken Robinson. On today's edition, we examine your heart. Despite efforts to educate the public, heart disease remains America's number one killer disease. It certainly is. We've made progress over the past four decades. We've cut the death rate from heart disease by about 40%, but even so, two out of every five Americans will die of coronary heart disease, and they needn't. Dr. Harvey Simon will explain what you can do to keep your heart in good working order. We'll also talk with someone who had to have a heart transplant to stay alive. It's all coming up on today's edition of Sunday Digest. But first, one way to keep yourself from getting heart disease is to get enough exercise. However, a lot of Americans aren't doing that, as we hear in this report from Ted Vygotsky. Recent data collected by the Centers for Disease Control's Behavior Risk Factor Surveillance System show about three in every ten American adults reporting no physical activity during their leisure time. Dr. Carl Kasperson, who works in the Division of Nutrition and Physical Activity, says there's little doubt you risk a lot later by doing little or nothing now. Physical inactivity increases the risk for heart disease, for diabetes, for colon cancer, for high blood pressure, and increases your uh, ability to put on weight and become obese. It increases your risk for osteoporosis and it can lead to muscle and joint disorders when you're very inactive. Inactivity appears to be at its highest in January and lowest in June. What we also found though was that the older adults, Hispanic Americans, and residents of southern states had not only higher rates of physical inactivity throughout the year, but they remained high month after month. So what tends to make older Americans more inactive? It may be that they're either socially isolated or simply uh, aware of the messages that are out there but just feel either unwilling or unable to be physically active. Now in some cases they don't realize that there are programs out there or their perceptions of them are that maybe they aren't figuring that they're correct for them or that they're actually safe. Kasperson suggests innovation. As far as whether you're in the north or the south there are a lot of very nice climate-controlled malls that you can take walks in that a lot of the uh, owners particularly like because then you're at least looking through the mall and looking at things you might be willing to purchase. The problem with Hispanic Americans may stem from a lack of effective communication. It could be that our traditional systems of delivering physical activity messages or even promotional strategies to the communities, at least for some Americans that are uh, of Hispanic origin, may find that it's uh, difficult to get the communicated message across to them. With respect to the North and South, we've felt that uh, the southern residents 
we saw that they weren't decreasing their inactivity very much in spring and summer months, and we really analytically could not rule out what might be explaining it. So we decided that it's most likely that southwestern states in the south are very, very hot in the summer, and also in the southeast there's a lot of heat as well as humidity that makes it very hard to be out and be physically active. Around 40 million of us suffer from arthritis, a number that's expected to soar to about 60 million by the year 2020. Fully 20% of adults are affected by arthritis and uh, other rheumatic conditions. And the question we wanted to answer is whether these adults have lower leisure time physical activity than, than other people do. And that's what we found. Dr. Chad Helmick in the CDC's Division of Adult and Community Health says these people had very high rates of no reported leisure time activity at all and much lower rates of light to moderate or vigorous leisure time physical activity. He says it's time to set the record straight about arthritis and physical activity. People with arthritis might have been mistakenly told in the past that they should not engage in physical activity because it might damage their joints, but I think there's good scientific evidence that's not true if you're careful about it. Helmick recommends checking with your doctor first and together developing a program to protect any actively inflamed joints. If they do this, and they get two benefits. One is they help protect the remaining joints they have. And secondly, they get the benefits of physical activity that everybody else would get in terms of heart disease, reduced diabetes, reduced blood pressure, etc. Helmick says there are national goals to increase our population's level of physical activity. People with arthritis comprise such a large part of the population that we'll have to make a special effort with them if we're going to make an overall uh, change in the level of physical activity. Both Helmick and Kasperson agree the ideal goal is to stay regularly active all through each year, every year of our lives. Ted Vygotsky, Atlanta. You're listening to Sunday Digest with Ken Robinson. And we're taking a look at heart disease on today's edition. Now, joining us on FM 99.5 is a Cleveland man who had to undergo a heart transplant. Dennis Payne is urging others to become organ donors, especially those in the minority community. And why is that, Dennis? Well, if we look nationally, we're looking at about 35,000 people who are on uh, waiting lists for transplantations. And over the last five to ten years, we've noticed an increased number of minority group individuals who have been added to that list in disproportion to uh, the number of minorities in the general population. So we need to, one, make the uh, community aware of this because this is something that they have not been informed of, and then two, from that awareness, get them a call to action to come out and to be uh, registered as donors uh, for that we can increase the pool of donations for all transplant recipients and in particular for minority transplant recipients who in some cases have a better chance of organ match because of racial or ethnic uh, factors than you would in the general population. Now, we often hear about those uh, many life-saving uh, organ uh, transplants that occur all the time. They make the news occasionally. Mm -hmm. But uh, there aren't very many minorities who are able to take advantage of uh, those life-saving techniques right now? Not in relationship to the number that are on the waiting list. Uh, again, in, in certain uh, organ transplants, the tissue typing, which is the number one thing that uh, qualifies this particular organ to be transplanted into this particular individual, uh, does not match because of genetic marker factors. And so if you have a high number of individuals on your waiting list who are of minority background and you have a low number of people who are on the donor list or, or who are organs are available from, uh, then 
the chances of the minority person getting that particular organ is reduced significantly. Now, any, let's take kidneys, for example. Any idea how many uh, minorities are waiting for kidney transplants uh, in the greater Cleveland area? Now, see, I knew that you were going to ask me that question, and uh, I hadn't uh, located my recent UNO book because we have figures from LifeBank, which is the local organ procurement organization in Cleveland, uh, that has those figures. I can just generally say that we're looking at, in the local area, somewhere around uh, a thousand plus people who are on waiting lists for kidneys, and about 35 to 40 percent of those would be minority group individuals. All right, and how long is the wait usually to, to receive a new kidney? See, that's, that's the variable part. It depends upon, one, the overall number of uh, kidneys in this particular instance that are available for uh, transplants. And that goes back to the number of people who have signed up and talked to their families about being donors in the first place. Uh, and then secondly, it depends upon uh, the condition of the transplant E, the person who needs the kidney, and what stage of, of retinal failure they're, they're at. Uh, so uh, it, it, it's complicated in the scientific approach to do the matching. Uh, but with, let's say that an average person is on the transplant list from three to four years for a kidney before they receive theirs. So it's, uh, it's, it's not uncommon for uh, a patient to wait maybe uh, 18 months or, or a year and a half for a, a kidney? It, that, is, that is a fast line uh, for, for a patient, 18 months to 24 months. You would say 36 to uh, 40 months would be more of an average wait. And, while the, and during that time, the patient is probably uh, going through a dialysis, which is helping to uh, cleanse the person's uh, body fluids that the kidney is not able to function at uh, during this waiting period. And uh, dialysis is not a very uh, pleasant uh, technique to undergo. Uh, it, it's not very pleasant for me and you, but for the person who is being saved a life because of dialysis, it's, 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 a, it's a very, very uh, pleasurable experience because it's prolonging life. Now, why, uh, why aren't more minorities uh, getting involved in tissue donation? Well, you have an historical uh, significance here in that, one, you have a lack of uh, education or a lack of awareness in the minority community about this whole issue of organ and tissue transplantation. And then beyond that, you have a lot of uh, myths, rumors, uh, and religious dogma that uh, is not uh, conducive to the subject of organ transplants. For example? For example, uh, if I die and go to heaven, I have to have my complete body to be able to be received into the pearly gates. Um, I don't want anything to come between me and my opportunity to get to heaven, therefore I want it, you know, to have my whole body complete. This basically comes down to a question of how many people really know what happens to the body once a person dies and is being prepared for a funeral in the first place. Most people think that their whole body is still intact when, in fact, going through the coroner's office and the embalming process and so forth. As a matter of speaking, a lot of your organs and fluids are already taken out of the body. But when you talk about voluntarily, knowingly giving up body parts and so forth, it just, just based because uh, you haven't talked to people about it and people have a fear of the unknown, uh, it takes in delays the opportunity for people to consciously uh, volunteer to give up their organs. It's kind of a hush-hush hush topic, uh, kind of like wills. Uh, 
people, uh, they want one, but they don't want to talk about it, and uh, they don't want to think about the possibility of actually having to, 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 to use one. That's a good analogy, and what we use in the church is that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. You know, everybody wants to live a long life, but when it comes to making decisions that would help someone else live a long life, well, let me think about it. And one of the most important things that we, we like to stress, just like you said about a will, is that when you, make, when you become informed, most people who become informed will make the next step and sign up to be a donor, you know, through the driver's license, back of your card, or through your university donation card. But the problem is, is those people keep that a secret, and therefore, when their demise happens, the hospital legally has to ask your next of kin, even though you have a signed donation card, next of kin for permission to remove your organs. And if you haven't already talked to your loved ones prior to that this is your decision, it's a very hard time that doctors coming in and saying your loved one, you know, has, is going on or has already gone on. And so now you're grief-stricken, and then the next thing they say is, we'd like to ask you, would you allow us to salvage the organs for someone else? And so the need to talk to your family about your decision in advance and to make sure that they understand this is your wish. You know, this is like your living will. This is your wish to have your organs donated uh, if you should meet uh, your demise. Uh, it, it is very, very critical, and, and we try to make sure that uh, people who are willing to sign up for donations also take that next step. All right, so talk to the family and make sure everybody knows. Make that decision, and uh, you may uh, save a life mm -hmm. after you're gone. And, and Ken, I myself uh, am a very, very proud and very, very uh, uh, humbled heart transplant recipient myself. So I know directly the benefit of someone else making the decision to donate an organ because my life was saved because someone's family donated their heart to save my life. Was it a long wait for you? In my case, it wasn't, and that was only because of the uh, seriousness of my illness and so forth. Uh, I had uh, deteriorated in a six-month period between October and uh, March very rapidly, and uh, I started the process of being certified to receive a heart transplant, and prior to the conclusion of that, uh, I was hospitalized and then determined eligible and then stayed in the hospital for six and a half weeks before I received my heart. So I, I was basically at the end on life supporting systems awaiting a heart because my condition was, was had deteriorated so fast. Well, we're certainly happy someone had the foresight to give you the gift of life, and we certainly want to thank you for talking to us on Sunday Digest today. We've been talking to Dennis Payne, a Cleveland man who had to undergo a heart transplant, and now he's urging others to become organ donors. Up next in the studio, we'll talk with one of the nation's top experts on heart disease. I'm Ken Robinson, and you're listening to Sunday Digest on FM 99.5 WGAR. Don't tell my heart, my achy-breaky heart, I just don't think it understands. And if you tell my heart, my achy-breaky heart, he might blow up and kill this man. And my guest is Dr. Harvey Simon, who's a physician at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. He's the author of a new book entitled Conquering Heart Disease, New Ways to Live Well Without Drugs 
or surgery. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Simon, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Ken. Thank you. Heart disease, is it still the uh, number one killer of Americans? It certainly is. We've made progress over the past four decades. We've cut the death rate from heart disease by about 40%, but even so, two out of every five Americans will die of coronary heart disease, and they needn't. Mm. It's something that can be avoided uh, basically through uh, lifestyle changes, you think? I'm sure it can be. It sounds like an outrageous concept, the notion of conquering this number one killer, but we really can do it, particularly if we start early and have a comprehensive approach that looks beyond uh, cholesterol to consider all the other lifestyle factors that contribute to heart disease and can be reversed uh, with relatively simple changes. Mm -hmm. Now, usually when we think of heart disease or somebody coming down with heart disease, two things usually pop into our mind. Drugs and surgery, prescription drugs and, and surgery. But you're saying uh, that uh, doesn't have to be a certain thing. Uh, exactly. Perhaps I can offer a parable to explain the way I think about this. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, assume the American heart is like the proverbial Pauline lashed to a railroad track with the express train of a heart attack thundering down upon her. Uh, we can use drugs or surgery to slow the train. We can stop the train. Sometimes we can even put the train in reverse. But if we want to get Pauline off the tracks, if we really want to get at the underlying disease, which is called atherosclerosis, a disease that can affect any blood vessel in the body, not just the coronary arteries, if we really want to free Pauline and prevent heart attacks from occurring, uh, we have to make the lifestyle changes. So mm -hmm. if we've waited until the disease occurs, sure, we may need drugs or surgery or fancy interventions but we still need lifestyle changes, and we could keep Pauline from getting on the tracks in the first place if we <laughs> started early enough. Now, I, I would imagine the number one uh, lifestyle change would probably have to do with diet. The number one is smoking. Smoking. Yeah. In uh, conquering heart disease, I call smoking cardiac enemy number one, and it really is. Uh, most people are aware that tobacco poisons the lungs and causes disease of many organs, but a lot of people aren't aware that it's uh, the number one contributor to heart disease. Moreover, it's not only your own personal smoking, but passive smoking that plays a big role. Active smoking will cause about 115,000 deaths uh, in the next 12 months in this country from heart attacks. Passive smoking, people who are habitually exposed to somebody else's tobacco smoke, will kill about 35,000 Americans from heart attacks in the next year. So both are a problem, and both are cardiac enemy number one. Now, when we usually think of smoking, we usually think of cancer. That's usually the, the big scare when it comes to uh, using tobacco. But you say heart disease is a, is a major factor there as well? Bo both are, are critical problems. Um, I cited the figure of 115,000 deaths from heart attacks from smoking. In total, uh, smoking will cause... Uh, about 435,000 deaths this year. So there are many other things that it'll do besides the heart, but the heart is real important. But yet so many young people start smoking these days, uh, even though they, many of them are, are aware of the risk, and people who are currently smoking find it so difficult to quit. Yeah. How, do you, how do you change that uh, aspect of one's lifestyle? It's really uh, complicated on a social uh, basis to think of how we can convince people uh, not to take up this habit. In the case of teenagers, you're absolutely right, Ken, about a million uh, new smokers uh, join the ranks each year. 
And these kids are subjected to peer pressure, to advertising, to all sorts of uh, pressure to get started. And if we could uh, raise the price of cigarettes, if we could educate kids in the schools, if we could, as parents, uh, set good examples, as physicians, if we could be health educators, uh, I really think we could stem the tide. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody who's already hooked, how can they stop? Uh, there are many, many uh, tricks that can be used, many techniques. Uh, uh, in conquering heart disease, I have a series of options that people can uh, use, practical tips to stop smoking, and professional help uh, is available from self-help groups, from hypnosis, from the nicotine patch, many, many ways. Uh, I used to smoke. It wasn't easy to stop. If I did it, anyone can do it. <laughs> okay. Now the number two lifestyle change we can make uh, to uh, lessen our chances of getting heart disease. Uh, number two is probably a low-fat, uh, low-cholesterol diet. Uh, cigarette smoking increases the risk of having a heart attack about two and a half times. A high blood cholesterol is close behind. People with abnormal cholesterol levels are about 2.4 times more likely to get a heart attack. And we can lower the cholesterol quite a lot uh, with a low-fat, low-cholesterol diet. A lot of people hear that, and they know they should uh, reduce the amount of fat in their diet, but so often they head to the nearest fast food restaurant or get out the butter and the, uh, the, the greasy sure. foods. And uh, sure. how, do you, how do you get a handle on that? Uh, slowly but steadily. I think <laughs> what you need to do is understand why dietary fat is so hazardous to health and plan to target your changes uh, slowly and steadily. Uh, I, in the book, I uh, talk about many ways that you can uh, find substitutes for fat and suggest that people don't try to make an all-or-nothing set of changes to say, I'll never go to another fast food restaurant, I'll never um, have another pat of butter, but instead to pick one meal, uh, to start with it, to make changes in breakfast, say, and to go from the donuts and croissants to bran muffins and then realize that bran muffins have more fat than really good for us and switch to bran cereal with low-fat milk and fruit. And if you make those changes gradually, you find that you really have a delicious breakfast. Then you move on to lunch, then dinner, then snacks, and enlist your whole family. Make these changes uh, collectively, and you find that really you have delicious eating uh, as a result and good health. Mm -hmm. I understand you're, you're big on fish. You feel Americans should eat more fish uh, in, in their daily diet. Yep, it's really, it's really important. You know, we've been talking about uh, the sort of obvious, well-known things, smoking and dietary fat. There are a lot of other things that can really help reduce the risk of heart disease. Uh, there are two other interventions which are every bit as important as uh, avoiding tobacco and having a low-fat diet. Uh, one is uh, reducing the amount of salt and sodium in the diet to lower blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And the other of the big four is to exercise regularly, uh, aerobic exercise frequently and fairly intensely, real important. Uh, that's the core, those four things. But uh, in Conquering Heart Disease, I offer not a single diet, but a whole menu of options that people can choose among. 15 different interventions to fight atherosclerosis, and eating fish is one of them. People who eat fish uh, three times a week have about a 40% lower risk of heart disease than people who never eat fish. What about alcohol? We used to hear that a, a, a glass of alcohol a day was somehow would uh, r reduce your risk for heart attacks. Uh, any, uh, any validity in that? 
There is, and I have a chapter in Conquering Heart Disease uh, on alcohol, and I call it Fighting Atherosclerosis uh, with a Smile. You know, when I talk <laughs> to people about uh, reducing the risk of heart disease and conquering heart disease, a lot of people think, well, gee, this sounds tough, and this is something I wouldn't like to do, or I have to spend a long time getting used to, but when it comes to having a little alcohol, uh, people are happy to give it a try in general, <laughs> and it does work. Mm -hmm. And we know it works uh, from at least a dozen studies conducted over the past uh, 14 years that show that low-dose alcohol reduces the risk of having a heart attack by about 40%, another very okay. substantial reduction. And we've learned in the past few years just how alcohol works. It elevates levels of the good cholesterol, the so-called HDL cholesterol in the blood. And just last month, uh, we learned that alcohol also helps uh, bust clots. Uh, which clots are the final act in producing heart attacks, and alcohol increases uh, the blood's ability to dissolve clots. So through two ways, it helps conquer heart disease. Mm -hmm. Women and heart attacks and, and heart disease. We, we used to hear uh, for so many years that uh, heart disease was, was basically a male ailment, and now we're finding out that that's not really the, the case. It's not the case. Uh, unfortunately, women are catching up to men in this regard in our country, and uh, it's probably because their lifestyles are starting to take on some of the undesirable traits of uh, the male lifestyle. Thank you very much. The book is called Conquering Heart Disease, New Ways to Live Well Without Drugs or Surgery. Our guest has been Dr. Harvey B. Simon, a physician at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And that's today's edition of Sunday Digest. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can write Sunday Digest, WGAR, 5005 Rockside Road, Cleveland, 44131. You can also fax us on the Lake Business Products fax line at 328-1995. If you have a home computer, we accept email. The address, kenrobinson at prodigy.net. Also, you can give us a call during regular business hours at 328-9950. Sunday Digest is a public affairs presentation of FM 99.5 WGAR, Cleveland's country music station. The views and opinions expressed on the show were those of the participants and not necessarily those of WGAR, its staff and management. Until next time, I'm Ken Robinson, thanking you for listening, hoping you'll join me for another edition of Sunday Digest. Welcome to Ken's Corner. I'm Ken Robinson. There's a growing scam affecting shoppers online. It's called typo piracy. When you slip up and misspell the name of your favorite store and it takes you to a bogus site that looks like the real thing. Sue McConnell is president of the Cleveland Better Business Bureau. And I always use Tiffany as an example because they get used like this all the time. Tiffany Jewelry. We had a site called TiffanyOnSale.com. Use Tiffany's uh, brand, colors, everything. And... Um, it turned out to be a scam, and people were ordering jewelry, and you did get something, but it was a cheap knockoff, not the real Tiffany product. But the prices were phenomenal, and that's what tempted people to go there. So research the online site very carefully. If you are going to purchase, use your credit card, um, because at least you have some recourse. If you don't get the merchandise, uh, or there's some problem with your order, you can get some recourse through your credit card company. Uh, so don't wire money, don't send gift cards, use your credit card. And also keep copies of any kind of receipt that you get mailed. Um, pay attention to 
any hidden terms or conditions, so read the terms and conditions. Uh, sometimes there are um, free offers, free trial offers. These are usually anti-aging products or weight loss products. And um, what you don't know is that when you agree to that free shipment, uh, you've also agreed to be automatically shipped every month $90, $100 worth of that same product. And these terms and conditions are in those links that we open up and it's, you know, this long. So when nobody reads it, we just say, I accept and go on. Uh, so research the site, pay by credit card, document your purchase. Sue McConnell of the Cleveland Better Business Bureau. Thanks for stopping by Ken's Corner, part of the K-Rob Collection. Learn more about our shows by checking out krobcollection.com or the K-Rob Collection Facebook page.